Hey, farmers and landowners, this is Damian Mason coming at you with a question. Have you ever had disease or pest problems cost you money by reducing your yield? Well, of course you have. We fight this, right? That's what production agriculture is all about, is working as best we can to put out a great yield, and to do so, oftentimes, you've got to overcome disease and pests. The problem is we usually treat those diseases and pests after the problem, right? So what if you could do it proactively? What if you had a tool that gave you predictive analytics so that you would know if you have things like corn rootworm, uh, soybean cyst nematode, sudden death syndrome? Well, you have that tool now. It's from Pattern Ag. Pattern Ag doing predictive soil analytics way beyond just the old days of sticking a probe in the ground every few acres and saying, hey, wow, we got some nitrogen deficiency here. They'll let you know if you have pests and disease. Go to pattern.ag. That's www.pattern.ag to learn more about this awesome technology and how it can help you increase your yields by taking care of diseases and pests before they cause you harm. Well, greetings and thanks for being here. Another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast coming your way. If you listened to the previous episode, you know that I have on a panel from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers who recently published what we're going to call the future of food. It's uh, 13 trends that are impacting and will impact the industry of agriculture. We had really good dialogue on the first six of those trends, uh, environmental impact about water optimization, increased protein demand for a population that is getting, we hope, a little bit more economically stable. Certainly the last two years have been a struggle for the poor people. Uh, we talked about supply chain shortening, and then we also talked about geographic shifts. This has been going on for a long time, as Grant and I talked about, uh, where we, we grow different stuff in different parts of the world. And maybe it's because of climate, maybe it's because of demand, maybe it's because of an, a new industry that came up. We're going to be getting into that also. Things like renewable diesel, we're going to be talking about that. And then we ended with a discussion about food traceability. And the point being there that we have an increasing, especially in affluent societies like the United States, developed economies like ours, Europe, Canada, you know, Australia, et cetera, we have a demand from our consumers. And a lot of what we're talking about here really does come back to, is it the consumers demanding this? And in many cases it is, but it's also a marketplace that's an evolution and that's going to affect us. And then we better, you know, respond uh, by being uh, adaptable to survive. So we got through the first six, we're going to give you the last seven, a number seven trend that, um, you guys had uh, covered in your article. Farmers adjust in response to emission regulation. Uh, this is a hot topic right now. This is what's happening with Canada and the Netherlands. It's all about emissions. I have, in the last 30 days, I have heard nitrogen and nitrous oxide in four different agricultural discussions I've been in. If we ever talked about nitrous oxide before, it was about you used it for fuel and race cars or as laughing gas. And now we're talking about it as some evil poison that agriculture is guilty of emitting. And by God, we're going to have to straighten this out. I'm telling you, this is all a new thing. So this one right here leading off episode number two, response to emission regulation. We got... Uh, if you hadn't listened to episode number one on this topic, I've got Mike Gomes with TopCon. I've got Ben Smith with Kubota, Grant Good with Agco, and then Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. I'll go to the tractor guys. Emissions, Grant, Ben, what's the deal? Yeah, so emissions is something that, uh, you know, all of us that uh, 
have uh, built uh, diesel engines and put, put them in tractors and those types of things. We actually know what nitrous oxide is. We do realize that uh, we've been fighting a battle on reducing the amount of uh, emissions that our diesel engines produce. In fact, we've we've really come a long ways, but uh, we're actually going to come quite a bit farther. What I would say about this is in agriculture, you're starting to hear about nitrogen or you're starting to hear about hydrogen and those types of things. The point here is, is with this slide, it's not a single solution that what we do in certain uh, applications of a diesel engine or a piece of farm equipment may not be what we do in all or every one. And, and so as we look at that, farmers are going to have to adjust to the fact that today, most likely it's a diesel powered engine. And in the future, it's most likely going to be different. How different? We're not exactly sure. One of the things to point to, and I'll, I'll be brief about this, but it's the fact that if you read a lot of the diesel engine magazines today, you're going to start hearing about fuel agnostic engines, and that's allowing us to use different fuel sources inside an internal combustion engine. That's pretty interesting. Not also, you're, you can't pick up the Wall Street Journal or turn on the television and not see something about electric vehicles, and you're most likely going to see them come to the farmstead as well in certain applications. Ben, this is a cool thing, but I, I'm a realist, and I tell you know my suburban friends, <laughs> uh, yeah, we burn diesel. In fact, your entire food system is predicated on us having access to fossil fuels. My Iowa farmer pal tells me, Five and a half gallons of diesel per acre farmed on average. Now, that includes the trucking, but also the combining, any little bit of light cultivation, et cetera. That's a lot of diesel bush uh, of gallons, right? And our tractors, the stuff that you are making there at Agco uh, right now, Grant, is more fuel efficient and better for the environment than uh, the Alice Chalmers, uh, the Alice Chalmers that rolled off the line in 1969. <laughs> They're cool to look at, but they were not exactly what you'd call environmentally friendly tractors from the old days. So aren't we already doing a good job? Absolutely. I mean, I think we've come a long ways, Damien. I mean, you look, you look at, you know, where we are now. I mean, I think if you compare the emissions output of, of a, you know, tier four final or tier five, you know, machine, I think a lot of times we're cleaner than the air in some of these downtown municipalities. So, I mean, it, it's really, we've come a long ways and you look at the farming industry as a whole, and we're one of the few industries that can actually have a net positive, you know, impact on the environment in this uh, capacity rather than a net negative. So, um, I think the, it also comes down to the law of diminishing returns when we come to that. I mean, you look at you know, what we have to do to get to these, you know, assuming it's diesel powered and continuing to be diesel powered for practicality's sake. I mean, you look at what we have to treat and what we have to do to get there. The environmental impact of doing those things also starts to add up when you look at the whole supply chain. So, you know, rare earths and diesel, you know, exhaust catalysts, you know, urea, all of these different things, it all adds up and you have to look at the whole picture. Do we eventually get rid of death? That's a pain in the ass. I'd love it. <laughs> I want to weigh in here just a little bit when we talk about, you know, just the bigger picture of reducing emissions. And one of the concerns that I think we all have that are in the uh, in the engine space or the off-road equipment space specifically is I am I am concerned, rightfully concerned that well-intended but ill-placed regulations will limit what we can do here. So, you know, what all of us in the engine space right now are saying is like don't prescribe don't, you know, we've got it, diesel engines can go a very long way and still continue to get better. You know, there's a lot of potential with hydrogen. There's a lot of potential with methane, but don't push us down a path that, uh, you know, sounds really good, like electric, 
but recognize that it's got environmental consequences that we haven't quite thought through just yet. So, I mean, I love diesel engines. I love the latest, latest generations of diesel engines. I mean, a, a low idle purring diesel engine as a, as a generator is a beautiful thing. They're, they're great, but it has a, it has a little bit of an image problem because it is diesel. And that's because of the smoke roll that came out of those diesel engines that you referred to before that were made right here in this factory. I'm setting it in, in, uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, so I think we've got to, to recognize and like all of us in agriculture got to be paying attention to telling that story is like, do not prescribe. We can't afford to have regulation prescribe a solution but rather, let's let the innovation evolve to the goal, which is we want to create a cleaner environment and reduce the emissions in the best way possible and make sure the power matches the need, uh, power source matches the need of the application at any given time. I think that anybody in this industry and the real concern, and I, I believe that when regulation then becomes hijacked and heralded by extremist groups uh, you know the people that run around telling you that uh, eating a cheeseburger is worse than dumping a barrel of oil in the ocean I mean there's some pretty wacky stuff that these people say and worse yet believe uh, if these movements become activist endorsed and activist written which happens sometimes we're we're in a position where we can't win we can't uh, you know <laughs> <laughs> the, the science that they always quote about how a cow is worse for the environment than an internal Russian car. I mean, it's just not even accurate, uh, but that's where this is a real concern for me, especially as it relates to uh, the livestock industry. Um, you know, again, 98% of Americans want to eat meat or milk or cheese or eggs. And uh, the, uh, the, the extreme group that uh, is out there telling you that uh, we need to regis- legislate away cows yeah, it's happening in Holland. It truly is right now happening in the Netherlands. So that's a concern I think most people would have. Yeah. And the fact is, Damien, we live in a society where most people haven't been hungry for generations. And that's where a lot of this comes from. I think if, if we ever get there again, that's a lot of the thing that disappears pretty quick. So. Yeah, Damien, as our California resident, um, because there are people who who do live in the land of fruits and nuts, um, figuratively and politically. I, I mean, there there are some crazy ideas out there, and I think it kind of comes back to Kurt's bit of of the fact that you know, as agriculturalists, in often cases we have the science on our side. We just we're, we're, we we just don't yet prove it, right? And 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 I guess that's that's the big piece of that is is that um, because you, you we're seeing in Europe where where regulate regulations are being prescribed at us. Right. And 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 I think that that's that's where the science is on our side. We just got to do a better job of proving our case. Yeah, yeah I don't, so throw in there the fact that we're going to have more innovation. Right. We're going to have new technology. We're going to have those types of things. To, to Kurt's point, you know, let's make it let's make it happen kind of naturally. But we, we will have new technology and we will have innovations that come from our abilities or, or at least the viability of certain things coming into our industry and being able to harness that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that there's, there's a lot on this one right here. Um, but uh, we're, we're all concerned about um, like I said, that, that this, this is the one that we're seeing happen in places like Holland. And it's, you know, when it starts, when it, when, when they have a thing called the Dutch minister of emissions and environment, that's her true title. And she says, quote, and I, we just read this uh, and released it in a podcast here. 
that there's going to be some liquidation. She is interesting. We're going to destroy some farm economies, but that's just what we have to do. I, I mean, and it's 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 this it's frightening to I think most people in ag. Incidentally, wasn't it Grant that said most of us have never been hungry? And in the previous episode, he got sore at me because he thought I was picking on his home state of Kansas, and he says no one's ever been hungry. Over his left shoulder, if you're listening and you're not viewing this, is a black and white image of a feed yard with some cows at the bunk, some cattle at the bunk. I'm kind of thinking about steak. I can look at animals on the hoof and get hungry for steak. Doesn't bother me a bit, just so you know. <laughs> Number eight, efforts to decarbonize create adjacent economies. We're sticking with this whole environmental thing. I had an interview with a true Terra person on the last month, and she used the word ecosystem marketing. Um, never heard of this at all until the last year or two or three in ag. The idea that we as landowners could get compensated for harnessing stuff like carbon out of the air. Who wants to take this? I'll start I'll us off. This. Oh, go, ahead. go ahead, Kurt. Yeah, Kurt, you go ahead and leave. Well, here, here's where, where I think we want to stay on here is like, yeah, adjacent economy. We use, we use the words carefully there. Adjacent economies will develop. I think there's a lot of promises that are being made to farmers that uh, uh, they're going to get rich on a carbon economy. I'm not convinced of that just yet. I think what we can say is that you can't sequester carbon without green plants. We kind of know that. Mm -hmm. And who grows green plants? Farmers. Mm -hmm. I would just hope that as this uh, adjacent economy develops, those landowners and those farmer stewards are able to to get a whole lot of that value that's generated by that carbon economy. Yeah, Mike. Right, sure thing. And and Damien, so our, our company, Topcon, we manufacture sensors, and one of those is the NORAC boom height control sensor, right? So we know the height of the ground and the height of the crop, right? And and so to to me, uh, agriculture and uh, because we are creating, um, because we are creating so much in green plants and so much in biomass, we now have the ability to to measure those things, right? And and when we're measuring what we're creating, that can we can create a better benefit around it with data, with documentation of practice. And so, so, so to me, um, most of agriculture has been doing the right thing for a long time. We just now have the ability to prove it, right? And, and improving and using data to prove things like that, right? Because I am growing so much crop, right? And I am creating this additional benefit because I am cultivating green plants in regenerative agriculture in a regenerative world, right? Those to me, those begin to roll up to um, at least some version of a win or some version of additional revenue for farmers. Right now, I'm not saying it's going to replace the primary, but the idea that it's going to augment, that it's going to help, right, that, it, that it's going to be another additionary benefit um, to what we're doing. I, to me, I see that in the next 10 years, per se. Yeah. Well, and we talked about the economics of doing more with less, too, and I think this plays into that as well. Um, in terms of, Damien, we discussed the carrot or the stick. Maybe this is where one of those carrots is. So I got a couple of thoughts on this. I heard about this sort of thing when I was speaking in Alberta for, uh, for Trimble several years ago at a conference. And it was all new to me. But then once you got your few dollars per acre, you also were told you what practices you are allowed to do and not allowed to do. So I guess I'm going to throw it out there to the panel. As part of this whole us getting a few dollars per acre from government or private industry or from Google or whoever, 
are we also going to be told, oh, and here's what you're going to do to get your few bucks. You're going to do this or this. Now, right now, it's not that way. The True Terra people will tell you, um, uh, a former sponsor here of my podcast was Nori. They're a carbon marketplace. And they say, we'll give you scoring um, on what you're doing, but we're not going to make you do anything. Is that just for now? What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I'll kind of start. And, you know, all the research I've done on this, which is maybe not uh, as much as I'd like to do, because this is something I'm kind of passionate about, um, is the fact that they're, they are looking at uh, potentially having you make a farming change. And a lot of that has to do with just trying to make sure that you're uh, sequestering that carbon and not releasing it. And and I think one of the things is, is that today, to, to, to Kurt's point, is that we don't have all of the things we need to be able to make this work or at least it's it's very new and it's uh what what I know is being done is is very difficult to track and trace and measure and that I think was is what leads this you know I don't know if I see the dollars really coming and having that potential mismatch between what the landowner and what the farmer because they could be two different people making that all work I think this is something that as we move into the future all of those question marks today or the challenges that we're facing today and making this work, they actually get solved. Whether it requires a, a farming practice change, I'm not 100% sure. I know I've heard that, mm-hmm. but it's having that ability to measure. You know, Mike mentioned sensors. We're going to have more sensors, better sensors, better data. We'll know if we do or don't, but I'm a huge proponent of the fact that if we believe in regenerative ag and protecting that soil or nurturing that soil, that this could be something that helps us as an agricultural community and businesses within agriculture be a little more um, on the environmentally friendly side, or at least capitalize on those that are trying to be carbon neutral. I've got a little concern that there's not very many of us that own the 350 million farmland acres or the 900 million ag acres in the United States. We're outnumbered. What if instead of us getting incentivized and opting to do it, we get told you're going to do it? That's my concern on this. And I, I've not been bashful about putting that out there. Well, so let's let's hold that thought just a little bit, Damien, for uh, for point 13, when we start talking about where the land is owned and uh, and the new business models. That's a, that's a good conversation around there. I think that's fantastic. Let's go to number nine. Number nine, connectivity gap narrows. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this. This is probably the this is probably the least interesting, but also most impactful thing of the 13 points that you guys made. And yes, I did read your stuff here, except for I, I had to skim through the last two. We in agriculture, uh, so many of us live and work in rural areas and the rural urban divide um, when it comes to technology is uh, it's, it's not just noticeable. It's almost, it's a handicap. Um, it's, it's a handicap to us. Um, your basic point here is that there's a whole bunch of money being thrown at this challenge. The reason that we don't have high speed internet in uh, 40 miles from Guyman, Oklahoma is because there's no people there. And so as usual, we cover, we cover where there's people first, right? And now we're getting to where there's not so many people. So I guess, go ahead. Who wants to take this one here? Uh, this, this I'll pick this one up. I'll, I'll pick this one up, Damien is Mike, because um, I I've had the, the benefit of serving on um, the FCC's committee for connect the needs for connectivity on precision agriculture. Ben is a fellow ta- is, is a fellow member of one of the sub one of the working groups. And um, the one thing that I've learned 
probably over the last couple of years, right? Probably one of the first things that came out of the first two years of that is, is if there's a silver lining in COVID, it's that more people understand that the challenge of rural America better than they ever did. And, and it's that $65 billion um, that begins to, to help start to draw down that. Um, I, I would say the other thing is, is that, that one of the other pieces that's really come out of that is, is that when you improve um, broadband connectivity for rural America, you benefit not just agriculture, but first education and second healthcare. And if there's two parts in uh, rural America that can get real benefits, it's education and healthcare. Now, agriculture comes along for the ride. And when we raise standards, right, the standard for wireless connectivity used to be 25 megabits per second download, three megabits per second upload. The new standard um, is 100 megabits per second download, 20 megabits per second upload where you're wireless. When you're wired, it's symmetrical service of 100-100, right? Um, and, and so to me, what that's really recognizing is, is that is, is that the, the connectivity, right? It, it's no longer just a cell phone and a person, but it's the center pivot. It's the barn. Yeah. It's the tractor. It's the combine, right? And and yeah. and those in in get in achieving that connectivity, what we are doing is is we're also we're also um, improving. Um, uh, the our our defense our, yeah. our defense mechanisms right where where it cre- really creates a lot of value all the way through the chain. Yeah, and you've got you get into this in another one of your points about the cybersecurity issue. But the reality is, we, you know, we're not out here with John Deere forty. Wait a minute, John Deere's not on this call. We're not out here with Case ten seventies anymore. Wait, he's not on a call either. All right, I'm trying to I'm trying to suck up to my equipment guys here. Uh, anyway. We're out here with modern machinery that's got, you know, more computerization than a car or truck. I mean, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And so we we do need this high speed Internet. Um, and, and I agree with you that it's coming and it's about time. The only challenge is by the time we get what we think is high speed, the, this, the urban areas will still probably have the next iteration of what is better and faster. Right. But there's something to be said for the tractor implement combinations and what they call working out on the edge. Right. So that then they're not dependent on the connectivity and they just report back what they've done. But when they get to a Wi-Fi hotspot, when they get to when they're met by the service truck or when they get to the to the equipment yard, very similar to the way a Tesla does is then they download, then they then they throw their payload of data out for the day. Right. And 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 so you don't have to always have connectivity, but it's a little bit of what connectivity do you need and when do you need it type of thing. Ben had something. Ben what? Yeah. So uh, Grant's going to laugh because he was a part of the group when this uh, came up. But uh, in fact, Grant, this may be your line. I can't remember exactly. But uh, one of the taglines that the group, when we were putting this together earlier this year, came up with this tagline that said, people vote, plants don't. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's dead on. Well, that's that's why you know we jet, we tend we tend we tend to be rule takers out here because rural people don't have the numbers. Hey, um, yeah, what is it? Uh, I think seventeen percent of the entire U.S. population that lives on about ninety three percent of the land. So I mean, we're just we're just sparse and and, and few out here. Uh, we're gonna go to the, the next uh, 
next trend. Before I do that, I want to remind my listeners, if you like what's happening here at the Business of Agriculture, please check out what I'm doing over at Extreme Ag. I joined those guys over a year ago. Basically, five cutting-edge, forward-thinking, business-minded farmers that now are doing product trials and doing new practices, and we're sharing it all via video uh, with a platform called ExtremeAg.Farm, ExtremeAg.Farm, no E on the front of it, ExtremeAg.Farm podcasts and videos that I'm helping them produce, telling the story of what they're doing out there. If you want to up your farming game, or if you want to know what's happening on North America's most forward-thinking farms, go check out extremeag.farm. Number 10, artificial intelligence enables insights-driven farming. Okay, getting a little bit, looking at a little gobbledygook here. Who's going to take this one? Let's go with our engineer, our engineer from Agco, Mr. Grant. Sounds good. So, yeah, certainly I think we're going to see, you know, machines get smarter. I think uh, it also comes back to this economics piece, Damien, both on the data generation piece so that we've got, you know, machines helping collect, you know, data to make, you know, the farming operation more efficient. But it's also on the labor input side. I think, you know, you see help wanted signs everywhere. Farmers, I know, are, are having really a tough time getting skilled labor. If we can either reduce the amount of skill that's uh, needed in that cab um, or eventually remove the operator from that cab, it certainly helps to solve that problem. Um, so I think there's going to be a big demand for this in the future, and the technology is finally starting to catch up um, to where we can meet some of those goals. You know, there's a reality that, again, uh, our suburban people probably get it because they know that right now maybe they go to a store and there's no clerk. They know that there's this issue with getting human labor. Um, but imagine then when you said, oh, hey, we've got a piece of equipment over here that's worth more than your house and we need someone to operate it. And you want me to call a temp agency? I mean, there's a reality about you're talking about sophisticated and expensive machinery that we grow the world's food with. And you want to take somebody that, you know, maybe did or didn't pass a P test that you're you just got from a temp agency. That's what's going to drive this uh, this automation and autonomous machinery. Am I right? Well, yeah. it's certainly remote and supervised operation, right? It's able enabled by connectivity. It's enabled by um, uh, the ability to get remote support, right? There are a number of things, but I think one of the other things, Damien, is, is that Grant's a planter guy, and he's got to talk a little bit about offensive and defensive varieties of sheep. What do you mean by that, uh, Mike, with offensive? Well, just in the whole insights-driven farming, right? It's the idea that, I mean, when you look at what you guys are doing with planters and how you can, you know, the idea of planting different seed types, whether it's an offensive sure. or a defensive by varieties. I mean, you guys are doing some exciting stuff over there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and it comes back to that data collection and generation piece, you know, and making equipment smarter so we can make better decisions, Mike. I mean, you know, what gets measured gets managed. You know, if we can create, you know, plant by plant decisions or, or you know, instead of areas and starting to shrink those zones um, in precision ag, it's it's better for everybody involved. Just to add to that just a little bit, it's about the data, right? What I love about this slide is optimization, right? That's one of the things that's big and it's blue and it's, it pops out when you look at it. And it, that optimization comes from the data, which is developed by sensors, which then goes back most likely through connectivity, another thing that's bolded out there with rural broadband, and allows us to make more real-time decisions. And because we have more, I'll use the term granular data, which is really more site-specific, we know more closer to the plant-by-plant, plant, and we're being able to make those decisions based on the information 
in near real time. And that all happens because of rural broadband when it's, when it's there and or edge computing when it's not. And it's all about the optimization. And it goes all the way back to feeding the world's growing population. Yeah, I, I like it. Um, and I, I think the equipment getting smarter. But again, this is the next iteration of what we've already been doing. We had driving tractors, self-driving tractors before we had self-driving cars. Uh, we had the ability to shut off a zone on your sprayer so you're not overlapping on uh, inputs and chemical treatments. You know, what, 20 years, 15, I, I'm thinking here, 10 to 20 years ago, at least. This is just the next iteration on all of that. Well, we're also bringing it to crops other than row crop. Okay. So if you look there, there's a strawberry. And one of the unique things and stories behind what's happening now in very small niche areas is they're actually developing strawberry harvesters that are smart enough to pick the strawberry, but they're also smart enough to know what comes next. What's the yield predictive going to be three weeks from now or two weeks from now? And when you put all that together and the information is not only shared from the farm gate out to the distributor and the retailer, now all of a sudden we know what, what the supply of strawberries looks like. But all that happens because of automation, artificial intelligence, sensors, and connectivity. Yeah. So yeah. So like you said, beyond just getting the thing harvested, then it's the the next part of it. By the way, um, on this very podcast about four to six months ago, I believe it was, we talked about the labor issue and how that strawberry harvesting machine prototype was good to about thirty percent. Uh, I mean, it would get thirty percent of the of the crop picked. And uh, the guy I had on said, when we get to like 70 or 80%, I bet you you'll see those things in mass. And I said, I bet you it won't take that long because if you can't get labor, you'd better get 30% harvested versus 0% harvested. I have a thing we'll, we would we will see str- less efficient strawberry automation uh, harvesting just because that beats not getting some crew there to pick them at all. I don't know how it ended up, by the way. Number 11. Resources pour into cybersecurity. And I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on here, but I just think about the hack on our meat processing plants. Uh, I think of the foreign actors that would like the United States of America to uh, be a less powerful and less well-fed country. Um, We had cybersecurity hacks from foreign actors on our petroleum pipeline. This is before we had an administration that decided to make us uh, over a barrel. I'm talking about this was done by foreign actors. Cybersecurity um, for the the most important thing we do, of course, is our energy and our food. And so I think that as we become more technologically advanced, we have a lot more vulnerability. And that's what you're speaking to here. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's there was a, a vulnerability report published a year ago by USDA that pointed to uh, you know, the the majors. Uh, so it was like the, the the vulnerability of the food supply. And it kind of talked about elevators and and uh, and how that goes. And and even uh, I think, you know, some of the equipment companies have have dealt with their own uh, uh, hacks as well. It's very real. Uh, but I think what we have to recognize is that that, uh, you know, this is going to affect all of your listeners, whether they're in production agriculture uh, directly as a farmer or whether they are somewhere along the food chain, is that we have all got to up our game and be diligent on cybersecurity uh, because there's vulnerabilities. And you never know exactly when that, when, that, when that hack could come in or where that vulnerability is. We've operated our ag industry fortunately because of, uh, you know, on, on, a, on the, the business of a handshake and trusting others. And when you are opening yourselves up to the World Wide Web and you're opening yourself up to some bad actors, we can't have that same level of trust that we've always had. And that's an unfortunate reality, but it is sort of the reality is that we have got to 
up our game on cybersecurity. And so resources are going to pour into this from all the all of the uh, agribusiness and all farmers. And, you know, there is a scarcity of resources. So what innovation will slow because we have to shore up our cybersecurity? I think that's one of the things that we have to take a look at. And then what's going to be the impact on a farmer uh, that's operating their farm on a daily basis. What kind of security do they have to have in, in place today that they never dreamed of having in place before because of the, the perceived and the real uh, issues of cybersecurity? Yeah, it's, you, you know, you think about, you know, and your article references the meat plant and, you know, and I referenced the pipeline company and, and all of a sudden there was no, there's no gasoline on the East coast for four days. You know I mean? It's, you're talking about real repercussions here and uh, you don't even think then about the farm level. The, you know, the guy down the road that's got half a million dollars of bu- or half a million bushels of grain storage, he's a big farmer. Uh, he's not doing that stuff, uh, you know, necessarily with a switch. There's a lot of technology. And so, and, and there's a real financial uh, cost here to this too. Makes you wonder if this gets a lot of acceptance five years ago, maybe wouldn't have, but we saw foreign actors hacking us. And then we saw how little teeny ripples in the supply chain and the COVID thing made it so that there was distortions of 10 times magnitude. So maybe this is the same thing where everybody says, I need this because of that. Number 12, we're just about done, dear listener. Number 12 with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, uh, 13 trends in the future of food production. And again, they made a good point. This is stuff that's really happening in the next five to 10 years. This is stuff that's really out there. And I agree with about all of this, except for a couple of things. And, and they've been cordial. We've had two disagreements so far, uh, and that's not too bad. We've only had two left, though, so we get plenty of time to disagree. Farm ownership models change. Now, I have been hearing this for a long time. You know, the true farm types since I was a kid, they didn't like that people from town were buying farm ground. And uh, there's always been this thing. Then uh, in my part of the world, every time I go to an auction, I write on my name tag, investor from Chicago. Because any time that a chunk of farm ground is bought for what's supposed to be a high number, I heard some damned investors from Chicago coming in here and buying this. So I just write investor from Chicago on my name tag when I go to auctions. It, it's, it amuses me. I'm not sure if it does everybody else. But anyway, your assessment here is that right now we got about 40% of farmland is rented and then the rest of it's owned. And, uh, of the rented farmland, 80% is owned by non-operator landlords, and 38% of those non-operator landlords are retired farmers. Okay, I'm not a retired farmer. I am a non-operating landlord for the most part. I have some little acres I fool with, but for the most part, most of my acres are rented out. I am in that category. Your assessment is that this is going to continue to change because of aging of the farmer and because of the, I assume, the capital. You're talking about a huge amount of money in these acres right now. So go ahead and take me, who wants to take me down the road about the changes? I can take that one, Damien. I mean, you talked about going to the auction. I mean, you look at aging farmers, you look at, you know, land changing hands that presents an opportunity for there to be a change in ownership. And I think you look at, you know, Wall State real estate investment trusts, you look at um, tech billionaires buying up quite a bit of farm ground. Um, you know, it certainly presents the opportunity for that ownership model to continue to, to evolve here. Yeah. And you also, you point out here, something that we never heard of. Well, real estate investment trusts became more known in the common vernacular, call it 20 years ago or so, right? And they generally bought hotels uh, and then had operators. They bought land, you know, apartments. But now we got real estate investment trusts 
and 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 person doesn't know what this is is not it's not a trust in, in a traditional sense and it anybody can be an investor in this they just take money it's like a mutual fund and then they buy farm ground with your money or you and 50 other investors money or a thousand other investors money we've been seeing that um there are those that don't like it you know particularly the the tech billionaire idea of this um usually returns go down and then there this whole craze goes away i mean if you have lived long enough we've seen this before where non-ag people came in and bought land what's your assessment on this who wants to give me a wrap-up on where this goes i'll uh, I'll, I'll weigh in here because one of my favorite topics is it's very personal to me my family farms in northeast missouri and we've been going through a uh, an estate planning situation where we separated the land from the farm and that was very intentional for tax purposes but I can say that what we were finding when we were going through this whole process and did a, a heck of a lot of investing, there are a lot of folks that are investing in those REITs specifically as a, as a hedge against inflation and uh, with never, with, with, without the intent of ever paying for the land, but rather continuing to invest in it, continue to pay towards it mm -hmm. uh, as a hedge against inflation. That becomes very interesting, but where it becomes even more interesting is so you think of of what does that do to the ownership? And I use my family farm as an example where we have always been able to rely on that land asset as a, a way to kind of smooth out the edges of a good year versus a bad year. When all of a sudden the land is decoupled even more so from the farm itself, the pressure on making an income every year increases sharply. That begins to really affect what people do in terms of their purchase decisions for inputs, their purchase decisions for capital equipment and where they market, how these things begin to really change when the farm land is further decoupled from the business itself. Then the final point on this is that right now it's a blind uh, REIT. I don't know if you all saw the news a couple of weeks ago that uh, Farmers National Company uh, has been making some bold headlines with their commitments towards uh, you know, carbon markets and sustainability. And so when you, you mentioned earlier, Damon, Damian, what, uh, what happens when the landowner begins to dictate or somebody else begins to dictate the practices on the farm? I think that is a very real possibility that could come out of these REITs and, and that, that farm ownership model where all of a sudden the condition of you being able to, rate, to, to, to access that land to cash rent You've got to do X, Y, and Z in your production practices. That changes everything. Completely agree. <clears throat> yep. What you got, Ben? Yeah, I completely agree with that. That's that's the uh, what we see is as a convergence between this farm ownership change and then also the idea or the the concept of a carbon economy or a carbon marketplace and the desire to piece together something like United Airlines, right? That emits a bunch of carbon every time an airplane takes off coupled mm -hmm. with here's a farm that has an opportunity to be a carbon sink and it's putting that together, but it's the restriction on the land. That's a game changer. And that's something that I think was brought up in this white paper that, that we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah. Well, there, and the thing is uh, you, you don't like it, but uh, if, if, if you own an asset um, <laughs> and someone else wants to rent it, it's, it's your, it's your, it's your decision as the owner to make that happen. Okay. Um, lever 13 new business model. And I, and by the way, I think it's less threatening. Usually economics way out. Usually then a landlord or a landowner or even a REIT says, 
well, we want you to do these three practices, but we also aren't making you jump over to moon because we know that nobody's going to give us rent to do that. So, I mean, generally the things work out. Well, yeah, I've got to do this, this, and this, but that's okay. I do that on most of my acres anyhow. Okay. So that's probably where it ends up. I wouldn't be as I wouldn't be as terrified of that. I'm a little more concerned about foreign entities owning American farmland because uh, of the, the control factor and, and being able to have the national security issue. So our last one here, we're going to go to my buddy, Ben. New business models emerge. With the convergence of the 12 trends previously discussed, several new business models will emerge in the agricultural industry. And we're talking about what? What's happening? This is the one page I didn't get read. So what, what happens here? What, what are we talking about? What's, what's emerging? What's, what's, what's merging? Yeah, what's, what's emerging? No, we are we're we're starting to see this one uh, very in in small small places and spaces start to play out. Uh, whether it's a startup or some other companies that are actually trying to uh, bring whether you call it farming as a service or equipment as a service type of business model, but it's the shift from owning the asset, right? And Kurt kind of talked about this before is the fact that some farm businesses are separating their land assets from the farm enterprise or the operating assets. Yeah. And so even as we look at some of uh, AEM's membership, you're starting to see this start to evolve. And really, it's it's along the lines of we've got a lot of technology coming into agriculture. And sometimes that technology has a pretty steep and high fee, but it also unlocks a lot of value. And so one of the shifts is, is the, can you move into more of a usage or like a technology as a service or equipment as a service type of a, a business model that enables the benefit of the technology without having to invest the cost. And the last thing to really add to this is the fact that because of the change in technology that we're bringing to equipment today, we're actually seeing that there is a perpetual need for updates to keep that as current as possible, especially when it gets into artificial intelligence. So not only is it connectivity, which was one of the other trends we talked about, but also in artificial intelligence, another term we talked about, but it's this convergence into a change in the business model. I got to tell you, and glancing at this page, was I guess I spent less time on it, uh, unfortunately, because I didn't get to it. Um, You're going to want to read it because it's interesting. Oh, yeah, I got it right here. Um, custom farming, you talk about that growing. I don't know. I mean, I, I could say that also not happening because then you're just you're just a contractor, which is fine. That that might end up happening. So essentially what you're saying is we're going to see, we know we're going to see consolidation. We know that broad acre farmers are going to consolidate. So then how they get the acres covered is going to probably evolve a little bit through whatever, some kind of custom harvesting contract or whatever, whatever. But one thing that you point out here is outcome-based pricing models. That's kind of big. So whoever wants to take that one, because um, I think most anybody that's ever been in business would love to do business with someone that says, you're going to pay us based on the, the what we deliver, period. I'll start on it because uh, you know that there was some, you know, been a lot of mergers on the crop protection side of the uh, of the ag business over the last 10 years. There have? Uh, I might, you might, you might've noticed, I'm not sure. Uh, but if I recall some of the early conversations around those justifications for the for the prices paid for purchases or the justifications for the mergers was a the promise of this outcome based pricing models. Yeah. And so, you know, we're really careful not to say one of these things is going to happen or another. I can't tell you what's going to happen, but I can guarantee you it's going to look very different than the other. So, if it's outcome based, I think everybody kind of wants to go there. There's going to be all of the a lot of the ag business companies want to go there. So if there's enough momentum, somebody's going to try it and somebody might succeed. If that is, you know, as you talk about custom farming, somebody's going to try it and it might succeed. Heck, it might be, you know, if you look at the, the sheer 
volume of dollars that are being poured into agriculture. Uh, you know, our friends from uh, from Ag Funder track track that pretty regularly of what dollars are going in, where they are going, uh, what those investments are, are going towards. There's a lot of outside money coming into our industry, and there's a lot of outside money that's coming to our industry from folks that don't have the same background in farming that we might have. So there's some creative thinking that's coming in that's going to change our business. I don't know if it's going to change it for the better or for the worse, but I think we can all agree it's going to change it for the difference. Right. And Damien, just from the asset side, right, whether, I mean, today, um, airlines don't necessarily, they, they may not own airplanes, right? They may lease them, right? You know, and, and, and you can begin to see um, whether it's tractor implement combinations, whether it's the work that the tractor that the that the tractor or the sprayer is doing, um, maybe because that smart connected equipment um, can can begin to diagnose and then and then properly dose as it's going down the row. You know, you can begin to see a number of different things, both for the developed world as well as for the developing world, um, continue as as equipment continues to get smarter, faster, and more connected. Yeah, now I've got you equipment people on here. First off, I agree with all that. I tell my ag audiences, um, one of the big changes going to happen in the next 10 years is called the Uber effect coming to uh, machinery. No offense to the people that are in the machinery business, which I know you all are. Why in the hell do I have two, three, four million dollars worth of equipment sitting out here in my tool shed that gets 100 hours, 200 hours put on it a year, maybe for a large grain operation? A dairy farm, like I rent my farm ground to a dairy guy, they'll have a tractor that gets 16 hours a day put on it. <laughs> they need that every day. Some of these grain operators need a combine for about 11 days. So I think we're going to have to see an Uberization there. And it's not because I want something bad to come to your industry, but that opens up a lot of capital. And all of a sudden, if I don't have to have a car because I just hop on an Uber, I got money I can put into something else. So I think that uh, that's going to happen. Am I right? Well, Dave, I agree with you, Damien, but those are fighting words. I mean, you're talking to the guy that's trying to help people sell more equipment every day. So uh, let's be a little bit careful on that one, although I tend to agree with you. But my job every day is to make sure that the other other folks on the call here sell more equipment every day. But I, I think we're all looking at this with a very open mind and saying, don't know what it's going to look like. And I think we can all agree that the capital the capital business is going to look very different. How farmers invest in their capitals can be very different. Just so your members know, I'm not in any way rooting on the demise <laughs> of their industry. Listen, I was once a political, I was a Bill Clinton impersonator when I started out. I knew about finite amount of time to make one's uh, living. Trust me. Uh, everything comes to an end. That's a niche. That's funny. Everything comes to an end. Okay, so here's the other thing. Ah, feel your pain. Okay, so uh, here's the, the next thing. What I'd really like to feel, though, darling, is uh, how'd you like to be an intern? Okay, enough of that. So how'd you like to occupy a position on my personal staff? All right, so here's the thing, guys. I want to know this last one about machinery. I say it's going to become not as owned. It's going to be more of an Uber uh, thing. I say it's going to be autonomous. I also say it's going to get smaller. I wrote about it in my book. Machinery's gotten only bigger for my entire life since I got all you machinery people on here. Is it going to get smaller? It won't fit down the road right now. It can't possibly get any bigger. Answer me. Mr. Good, you're the engineer. I think we have hit that uh, spot, Damien, where we're probably not going to see larger equipment in, in broad applications. You may have some niche you know, applications where you find larger equipment yet, but I do think the trend will probably be to, to more smaller machines. You get diversification of uptime through that. You get uh, maybe easier use 
um, to convoy down the road once equipment is uh, fully autonomous. Um, you know, a lot of benefits uh, down that road. Anybody else on that topic? I'll, I'll take it just from the, you know, from the idea of tractors and implements getting smarter, getting smaller, but also faster and more sophisticated with multiple operations in a single pass, right? Um, and you begin to see elements of what they call platooning. Right. As you get more and more of the small guys that you can you can you can more cost effectively bring more of those and get faster on time performance. But I'm sure Ben has something to say. Yeah, what I was going to say is, is, you know, you look at the trends that are up here right now and the topic you brought up, right, touches numerous ones of these trends that if some of these trends come true, then I think what you're talking about or the question that you posed really starts to become viable and or, you know, there's a little bit of a chicken and an egg here, which happens first. And, you know, again, I, I go back to, I'm a pretty optimistic guy and I've, uh, uh, you know, in the role that I serve, I, I get the opportunity to try to look into the crystal ball and see what's over the horizon. And so I don't really know, but I have a few ideas and opinions. And I think as you look at these trends and you look at what the work of this white paper does, which I'd encourage everybody to read, but it, it really touches on a lot of those things. And you get to a point where, if these things happen or the convergence of these different trends happen, it opens up the capability to do things different, do things better, and ultimately solve the challenge that we're up against, which is uh, feeding the world's growing population. I want to um, make sure that anybody that wants to dig into this, I mean, you've already listened to two episodes, so you probably got all you need on these 13 trends, but it's a good piece. And it was sent to me by Mike Gomes. Where do they find us? If I want to, if I want to find us, if I want to go and read up to check some of the data sources you pulled for your publication of the future of food production by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, where do I find it? The best place to find it is at aem.org. That's aem.org slash insights. And on that page, you'll find the future food production white paper, as well as the companion one that we have on the future of building along with a couple of other studies. One of them I referenced in a previous podcast, the environmental ben benefits of precision agriculture. And in a couple of weeks, you'll see a new study on the environmental benefits of modern dairy and forage production. So a lot of research out there that you can find out there. I like that. And are, were we just admitting that you're a two-timer? There's only one podcast to be on, Kurt. There's only one podcast to be on, all right? And that's mine. Well, well let's talk about construction next time, Damian. I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in. All right. Maybe we won't do that. His name is Kurt Blades. He's the executive director for the Association of Equipment Manufacturing. Uh, ben Smith with Kubota. Mike Gomes with TopCon. Grant Good with AgCo. I'm sure you can probably find them on LinkedIn or wherever you want to try and hook up with them if you want to dig into more. Send me a line if you uh, have any comments about this podcast. Do me a favor and share this with somebody that you know who will enjoy it. You know what? We have produced over 250 episodes. We have tremendous following, and I like it when people send me an email and tell me they really got something out of the topic. So I hope this helped you. Till next time, thanks everybody for being here. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture. Hey, thanks for being here. This episode of the Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Pattern Ag. You've heard me talk about Pattern Ag because I think it's a pretty cool concept. New technology that allows you to predict the problems you're going to have and therefore treat them before those problems cost you money. What kind of problems am I talking about? Pests 
and disease. Things like cordon rootworm, uh, sudden death syndrome, cyst nematode, and a whole bunch of other bad things that happen out there in the field that can cost you money. Guess what? Pattern Ag will let you find out ahead of time if the disease or the pest pressure is there and therefore you're treating it before it costs you any money. What a great concept. Go to pattern.ag. That's www.pattern.ag to learn more about their product, their technology, how it can make you money, save you yield, and all also, where you can find a rep that can come out there and do the work for you. Pattern.ag. 